Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists and food makers, farmers, authors and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good weekend to you food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Chefs are often considered artists. And as a chef, I love creating signature dishes, folding in my own creative touches and letting bits of my personality marinate through. Blending textures and flavors to create the ultimate experience is my specialty, and you'll learn it all here. So don't touch your dial, because every weekend this show brings you all the inspiration you need, and it's a really easy way to get your quick fix of culinary entertainment. It's my goal to feed your soul and satiate your appetite, so I share radio commentary on everything delicious, plus I cover health and wellness, travel, tech, wine, mixology, and more. So I hope that you'll make this your destination for delicious conversation because there are no reservations needed. I'm always serving up seconds, by the way, at chefjamie.com. And you can follow me on social, become a friend and a fan, please, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. Plus, if you happen to have missed a show or would like to master a topic, well, then you can find my tasty podcasts on iTunes listed under Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. So let's get this summer party started, shall we? I kick off this show with a tutorial of sorts to make you the best cook you know, And summer corn is such a lovely thing, don't you think? Whether you grill it or steam it or eat it right off the cob, just don't miss out on the sweet summer crop of corn because nothing says summer quite like corn on the cob. Maybe it's because of the vegetable's climatic roots. You know, scientists believe that the people of central Mexico developed corn from a wild grass, which happened about 7,000 years ago. It's also known as maize, and corn eventually spread north to the southwestern U.S. and south to Peru. And Columbus is said to have acquired corn from Indians in America and brought it back to Spain. Now, from there, it spread to Western Europe and in time to the rest of the world. And corn is now actually grown on every continent except Antarctica. There's a little bit of culinary history for you. And what food is more synonymous with summer than freshly picked corn on the cob? Now, I happen to love the host of different varieties that are available today. You can get an array of colors. You can find red and pink, black, even purple. Uh, Although when it comes to choosing between yellow and white, I always choose white. I tend to find it slightly sweeter and I have a secret to enhancing that sweetness. So stay tuned. Just for fun though, before you bite into that corn on the cob at your next barbecue, let's take a closer look. So the average ear of corn has 800 kernels that are arranged in 16 rows, and there is one strand of silk for each kernel. Who knew, right? That's what I call really good dinner party conversation. 800 kernels, 16 rows, and one strand of silk for each kernel. 
But there are lots of wonderful ways to eating corn straight from the cob as well. So let's start with freshly made cream corn. Oh yes, you throw some fresh kernels into a pan with copious amounts of good butter and after a little while you add some heavy cream and some seasoning and you heat it through and then you eat it with a spoon out of the pot. It's so good. To easily take the kernels off the cob, here's my best chef's tip. You want to stand the corn on the cob upright in a bowl and use a paring knife to cut down along the kernels as close to the cob as you can so you get all the goodness. Now, you can also line a cutting board with a kitchen towel and cut the kernels off. The tip there is that the towel acts as a a buffer, rather, to keep the kernels from flying around. And if you want really complete yield, after you've removed the kernels, you use the back of your chef's knife to scrape the corn cobs of what is called the corn milk. That milky liquid that you extract from the cob is a really beautiful addition to corn soup or chowder. And then if you really want to go to the ultimate, um, you know, uh, waste, not, want, not, then you boil the cobs after you've taken the corn off the cobs, of course, um, for added flavor in your soup. Or you can even throw them into a pot of water. And in about 10 minutes, you have what is corn stock. And if you eat vegetarian, well, then it's far more flavorful than water next time you make a dish that calls for it. Now... You have the kernels, you've cut them off. What else can you make? How about a corn and avocado salsa for grilled salmon? Oh, or how about a tomato and corn salsa for dipping chips into? Scallops, shrimp, crab, lobster, they all pair well with corn, whether it's a summer salad or a clam bake. Um, I do love a corn soup and I like it hot or cold alongside an arugula salad, perfect meatless Monday vegetarian meal, uh, lobster and corn chowder, even better. Uh, coconut is a crazy great flavor complement to corn as well. So you could always make a corn and coconut milk soup and serve it in a little espresso cup for a cocktail party. How about corn and cheddar biscuits? Oh yes. If you happen to just be boiling uh, corn on the cob or ears of corn to serve that way. Here's my best secret. That is you want to salt the water the way that you would for pasta so that it's really briny and salty to the, t- you know, to the taste. And then I always throw in um, a, a tablespoon or two of granulated sugar. Even if the corn is super sweet peak of the season, I find that the sugar in the water brings out the sugar in the corn. And be sure not to boil it too long. I still like the corn to have texture when it comes out from the boiling water. But most of all, I love grilled corn. The flavor is incomparable, right? The smoky goodness, a little bit of char. The corn cooks just enough that you still get that crisp tender when it comes to the texture. But my secret lots of secrets today, right? Is a coating of mayonnaise on the corn cobs to lock in moisture. Now don't knock it till you try it. So you can grill corn in the husk where it actually steams itself and you sort of get the bonus of smoky flavor from the grill as a subtlety. And you get a neat built-in handle because when you fold back the husk or pull it back to reveal the steamed corn, um, then you can tie it and there's something to hold on to. And I'll usually add a compound butter that melts nicely there. And that eliminates the need to roll the cob in butter after cooking. I make a Parmesan basil butter. I love the 
the salty parm and the herbaceous fresh flavor of basil that combine perfectly. And it's really simple to make. You take a stick of butter and you soften it and you mash it together with uh, some grated Parmesan cheese, some finely chopped basil, salt, pepper. You could throw in any seasonings that you like. And then you can even keep it at room temperature or you can form it into a log and refrigerate it and then slice it or just rub it all over that hot corn, whether it comes out of the pot or straight from the grill. But if you have already cleaned your corn cobs, your, uh, you know, corn on the cob, I should say, I like to run it under the faucet so that there's some moisture to it when it goes on the grill, which actually does aid in the steaming process. And then about... I don't know, a few minutes, four or five later, just as the corn's beginning to cook, I give it that coating of mayonnaise, which locks in the moisture and actually gives you some really beautiful caramelization. And by the time the corn is charred in some places and hot throughout, you have the absolute perfect grilled corn. You could gild the lily and roll it in Parmesan. So it's mayonnaise uh, on the corn on the cob and then Parmesan cheese. Uh, You could elevate by adding some freshly chopped herbs to that grated Parmesan cheese. Um, You could do chili powder and lime. Oh, the opportunities, the possibilities, the flavors are endless. And I do have lots of recipes galore for the summer season to savor the sweet essence of fresh corn at its peak. So please check out chefjamie.com where they are all posted and let me know what you make and how delicious the sweet summer corn where you live is. And please do not touch your dial because there is lots more delicious conversation coming up. We're heading north and we're going to share the beauty of Icelandic cuisine right after the break. Oh, I love how they preserve everything. Also, We're talking some culinary science with Jessica Gavin in a little bit. And before the end of the hour, we will quench your thirst because those eight glasses of water that you're drinking, they might not be doing it. Stay tuned. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio with lots more fabulous food right after this. Does food speak to you? Because it does me. And so I'm paying it forward every weekend. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. We're taking a glimpse into Nordic life today. Katrin Bjork celebrates the flavors of her childhood when she cooks her Icelandic favorites using fresh ingredients and unique twists. Her modern techniques make traditional Nordic cooking simple and approachable. The new book release from Katrin Bjork, 
is available now and uh, getting great acclaim, in fact. It is a simple and modern approach to authentic Norton cooking, and it is entitled From the North. And Katrin Bjork is here to dish. I'm very glad to have you, Katrin. Congratulations. The book is beautiful. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me on your show. <laughs> yes, of course. Um, I know that you uh, began as a photographer who had a tremendous passion for food and has merged uh, the two uh, beautiful talents. But share the gastronomic pleasures of your childhood growing up in Iceland, if you would. There must be some things you miss. And I I love how you talk about celebrations in Iceland. There was salmon everywhere, wasn't there? There there was, and there (laughs) still is. And I think Icelandic families were and still are cooking families. We cook a lot. It's in our culture that we had to cook and we had to preserve and, you know, be creative with the few ingredients we had because Iceland used to be a very isolated island. I mean, it's not anymore because of, you know, we're global now and everything is reachable. But, I mean, until 2005, lime was an exotic fruit in Iceland, which is kind of funny. But, but yeah, I come from a cooking family. I come from um, come from cooks that would be, they weren't cooking wild, but they were cooking what with what they had, and they were doing it beautifully. So that was inspiring to me to watch mainly the women of my family hmm. cook. And I miss that in modern day where we're so busy and so hectic and, you know, and I myself also tend to take an easy solution instead of, you know, cooking a whole goose for a Saturday night feast. That really brings me back, Katrin, what you've said to my culinary school days. Um, And in fact, a a long while back, um, they are from the CIA, very near where you live now in New York's Hudson Valley. And not only were we learning the classical techniques, but I always felt like I was really cooking from the heart, from scratch, learning the process, utilizing what was available. And there is something to be said for that style of cooking and the beauty of, uh, of really uh, delving deep, I would say. And I felt that from your recipes as you speak about your childhood, using what was available and having to be, you know exploratory and adventurous in the process. Well, thank you. Yes, it was actually moving back here to the Hudson Valley. I I lived in Copenhagen in Denmark in a city life for 15 years before moving here. And it was actually moving back or back to nature. Mm -hmm. I felt somewhat like coming home, even though it was in Iceland and it wasn't the produce necessarily that I grew up with or the flavors, but coming back to the countryside starting to grow my own vegetables, yes. having a farmer's market literally right next door, that pushed me to cook more. And that actually pushed me to to make this book and make it how it is. Everything in this book is locally sourced. And I connected with some great butchers and um, fishmongers to, to, to get me the freshest fish. And um, so it was very inspiring for me, too, to make this book and go back and dig deep and remember what was my favorite food and why. For sure. But also, I used to that after 15 years in Denmark, which is, you know, also a Nordic country and, and shares a lot 
uh, with Icelandic cooking and, and food, um, go back to my husband, who's Danish, go back to his favorite recipes and talk mm. to his mother, who also cooks a lot and grows a lot of vegetables, um, and mix the two. Yeah, and lots moderni- of... And, yeah, and modernize the Icelandic Lots of heritage, and I love that. Um, reindeer, rhubarb, radishes. What else do you love? I love fish, uh, I have to say. And I'm also a big lover of game, which yes. you can see throughout the book yes. with, um, with my reindeer <laughs> and my goose and my, <laughs> and my wild birds. Um, yeah, that is definitely, I mean, in Iceland, we are fish and meat lovers. That is what we are by nature. And it's, and we have the root vegetables and we have the radishes. And even though it's funny, like radishes, I grew up only eating them raw. And I love them. They're so peppery and fun and, and cute colored and all that. And so for this book, I wanted to do something different. And I asked my mom why we only ate them raw. And she said, because she ate them raw. So it's all about culture and heritage. So, But I wanted to change that a little bit and mix it up. So in my book, they're blistered. Yes, and you know, I happen to love warm or hot radishes, and I have roasted them before for the same technique that you do to uh, sort of soften the bite, but you get that really beautiful contrast of a little mm-hmm. bit of the peppery goodness with the richness of the radish at a warmer temperature. And then I flip to the page of your smoked butter tutorial. And then I got excited because I thought I should blister radishes and add some smoked butter. You should. Yes, I should. We all should. Um, But those are the flavors that excite my palate as well. Um, Okay, let's cook. Um, Some secrets, if you would, to authentic gravlocks as we celebrate your heritage. The secret is having the best quality fish possible. I mean, I'd love to recommend to the listeners, please go fishing (laughs) for the best fish. If you can't, make sure you're buying something really fresh and vibrant um, because that is the key. And then dill, so much dill. You, you have to use way more dill than you than think. You can yes. Yes. And cover it and again and again and add more and because that is definitely the secret. And then for serving, mustard sauce. Mm. The book is beautiful. Congratulations to you once again. And thank you for sharing your passion and your heritage and for inspiring all of us to cook outside the lines, to break the boundaries, to really discover new tastes from around the world. Uh, it's it's beautiful work. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. Yes, my pleasure. Happy, happy cooking to all of you. Yes. I really hope this thank book will you. bring some Nordic flavors to plates around the United States. Oh, that would make me really happy. <laughs> no doubt it will. No doubt. Katrin Bjork is the voice and cook behind the popular food blog, Modern Wife Style. Her photography and her recipes have been featured in every major food publication. And she is deeply rooted in the connection to nature and family that is at the heart of Nordic life. The book is called From the North, and it is available on Amazon and in fine bookstores everywhere. And you can follow Katrin's wonderful culinary adventures, uh, by the way, uh, beautifully photographed at 
Katrin Bjork, B-J-O-R-K. There is lots more delicious conversation from around the world in your radio right after this. Cook like a pro just by tuning in. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. We're digging deep today using simple science to transform good dishes into great dishes. Food scientist Jessica Gavin is here to help you navigate through the essential techniques that will make you a better cook in your own kitchen. In her new book release entitled Easy Culinary Science for Better Cooking, Jessica maximizes flavor potential by sharing insight into why you should turn up the heat, let the water do the work, and learn to emulsify. Chef and culinary scientist Jessica Gavin is here to dish, and I'm glad to have you. Hi, Jessica. Hi, Jamie. Thank you for having me. Yes, of course. Okay, um, I love your culinary science background and the fact that you're making elevated dishes, but they're nothing out of the, you know, everyday fabulous, I should say. It's really taking our best signature dishes and applying culinary science to get the best out of them, right? That's your approach. Absolutely. So let's start with uh, dry heat, please. Tell us why we should turn up the heat to increase flavor, you say. Yes. Well, a lot of times people feel like they need to add more ingredients or just, you know, add layers of, of things to make um, a recipe taste better. But really, you know, you have your base foundation that, you know, to, to kind of get the, the flavors kind of going. But really, heat and temperature is really kind of the workhorse in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. And by understanding kind of how it works um, in terms of, of temperature and interactions with your food, you could really elevate those flavors without add, having to add anything at all. And um, one of the things that I really talk about and go in depth with for the dry heat cooking section is about Maillard browning, and all all foods, you know, contain proteins and some level of, of natural sugars. And so, when those two things interact, and uh, when there's um, heat involved, some amazing things happen. And that's thousands and of uh, hundreds of new flavors that are being generated right in the pan while you're cooking. So, a lot of people, for I think the normal home cook, is it's when you see that, that browning, you know, on the surface of different foods or, say, you bake a tray of cookies and, you know, the raw cookie dough tastes pretty good on its <laughs> own, of course. We've been known to sneak that. But there's something different, you know, when you when you put the cookie tray in the oven and then 10 minutes later your kids are running down the stairs because they could smell it. And that's the Miller browning reaction. You know, you're just applying heat and different things are happening that are magical for cooking. So that Mallard reaction that you talk about is the essentially the caramelization effect, right? Like, I think the perfect example is searing a scallop. It's been drilled into our heads, and you and I know from uh, culinary school a long while back, and, you know, constant... 
uh, culinary education that is shared so wonderfully everywhere today that searing a scallop is all about high heat and patience, right? It's about getting that absolute gorgeous color to bring out the flavor of the scallop. Yes, exactly. And I think actually a lot of times um, caramelization and Maillard browning get a a little bit confused. Uh, They have a little bit of identity crisis, I would say. Because Maillard browning, you know, will happen at the surface like of a food when it gets to about 300 degrees. So that's, that's one thing that happens. But then caramelization... Of, sh- of sugars, especially, like, say, if you have, um, you're doing a marinade and you added honey or brown sugar, um, will happen a lot quicker. So you'll see the browning reaction, and that could be um, good or bad sometimes because it can get to burnt pretty quickly right. or if you're making a caramel sauce. So a lot of times those two things um, can happen independently depending on what you're making or they happen, you know, uh, at the same time. So kind of interesting, you know, um, depending on what ingredients you have with your food, um, different things can happen. Yeah, to, to learn and understand it. I can't wait to make your ribeye with miso butter. That looks like an umami bomb. Yes, and definitely. that is the the lesson, the technique of pan searing a steak like a steakhouse. You use a cast iron skillet, and you get that really even beautiful color, and the flavor comes out. That's the mallard reaction that you're talking about. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's move to moist heat cooking. So we're going from dry to wet. Um, You say that water is not just an ingredient, albeit I was taught by the great Emeril Lagasse a long time ago, Jessica, that water has no flavor. So find another ingredient. But in the cooking process, you say it's a very fascinating molecule that transforms the structure of foods. Okay, so uh, can you go into some depth for us? Because I think there's a lot to learn here. Water, the, the interesting about that is it can change states, you know, so... And you can use it and manipulate water to do different things. So, you know, you could either poach, simmer, boil, you know, to to, um, blanch and shock ingredients like vegetables. Or you can utilize, um, turn up the heat and utilize it for steam. Um, And then those different things, you know, can kind of transform the texture of meats depending on what type of meat you're using. When it comes to water and rice... You make a Chinese sticky rice that I understand is a generational. It's been passed down. Uh, and yes. anything with barbecue pork, I will eat. Awesome. <laughs> yes. Um, but a couple of rice tips, if you would, because that's a moist heat cooking method and one that even great cooks falter with. Yeah. I mean, definitely I with that, I always, you know, bring it to the boil, bring it to boil just to get the temperature up and then cover and simmer. And I never, ever stir my rice. Um, But the thing about with rice, I think, in general, um, that's kind of interesting. If you're going for, you know, separate grains, um, you definitely want to wash the rice um, because there's starches on the outside. And you'll kind of see that in in the water as you're rinsing or if you just let it kind of sit, you'll see the starches kind of settle out. And I used to wash my my rice um, probably like two or three times until the water runs clear for just everyday cooking white rice and enjoying it and I did that because at first you know I would see my grandma do it and Mm. I would see my mom and everyone would be doing that and I never understood why until I started like studying the science behind (laughs) all the ingredients and it's like that totally makes sense 
But if you're going to do a sticky rice, you kind of want those starches so that the rice sticks together more so you have more of a cohesive mass depending on, you know, what you're trying to achieve with the recipe. Right. All about the texture for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was delighted to see that you're a fan of the slow cooker. So seeing that it's summertime um, and there's nothing better than ribs finished on the grill, sweet, sticky glaze, just the last few minutes. I love that you make your ribs in the slow cooker, but the way that you place the ribs in a concentric circle facing the outside or touching the outside of the interior pot of the slow cooker was a a total lesson of realization for me that you get browning and color on the exterior by using that surface area where the heat uh, exposes to the meat. You don't have to have a barbecue grill or even be outside to make barbecue barbecue tasting type of food because if you kind of leverage, you know, like you're saying, the heat inside of the ceramic vessel, you can kind of start that Maillard reaction, you know, Mm. over a long period of time. And then that way you're kind of coaxing out the flavor on the surface while um, you're using the moist heat cooking of the cover and the steam um, that's being generated to kind of soften the collagen um, in the, the meat. And also then that turns into gelatin. So it's kind of this luscious, very flavorful rib that's falling off the bones. Okay, so good. You made my mouth water. Um, (laughs) Emulsifying is a whole nother show, but if you would make your strawberry balsamic vinaigrette for us, because I love the tips that you shared about pectin in the recipe, but this is the ultimate summer sensation, salad dressing. And I do believe in in emulsifying. We've all been taught to drizzle the oil slowly. I did not know that the pectin in the strawberries aids in the thickening. I I love this recipe because basically, you know, you can just dump everything in in terms of everything except for the oil. So you have your strawberries and a little bit of water, your balsamic vinegar, shallots, and mustard and honey and some salt and pepper. And so you want to get that into a puree. And a lot of times um, there's natural pectin that's inside of the strawberry. So once you kind of use the blades to break down the cell walls, they kind of just become exposed and free and they're wanting to kind of um, bind. And if you have a little bit of water and acid, so acid from the vinegar and the water that you've added, it starts to naturally thicken just like um, you would for, for, say, jam. Really fascinating lessons to make us all better cooks. Congratulations to you on the book and thank you for sharing your passion. Thank you so much, Jamie. Yes, no of problem. Course. Learn the science behind how foods interact and cook smart from Jessica Gavin's new book, Easy Culinary Science for Better Cooking. Don't touch your dial. There's lots more delicious conversation coming up in your radio right after this. Live well, eat well. Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. For years, we've been urged to drink eight glasses of water a day. 
But did you know that an apple and a glass of water hydrates more than two glasses of water? Because the fiber in that apple allows you to absorb the liquid that you drink. That knowledge is based on breakthrough new science in the field of hydration. And a book just released entitled Quench by Dr. Dana Cohen and cultural anthropologist Gina Bria is demonstrating how eating hydrating fruits, plants, seeds, and other foods is a more efficient and effective way to get the water you need to heal your body from the inside out. And I found it fascinating. So I've begun reading Quench, and I will tell you, it is really interesting and very brilliant new information, and we are arming you with it. Gina Bria is an expert on hydration strategies around the world, an anthropologist named a real-world scholar and a former Berlin fellow, and she is here to enlighten us. Hi, Gina. Glad to have you. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me to your radio show. Yes, of course. Okay, the the long going running controversy in my own head, Gina, albeit aside from what we've heard for so many years, eight glasses a day, eight glasses a day. You are really debunking that wisdom. Well, do you find it hard to drink eight glasses of water a day? Some days, albeit though lately I find myself very thirsty, and so then I second-guess myself. I question if I'm not drinking enough. And you say we're hydrating all wrong, so really th- that's what I yearn to know. Well, the most important word I can share with you, Jamie, is the word absorption. Hmm. So that is a personal formula. How much you absorb is the key to hydration. Drinking, 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 you may not be getting the hydration that you're seeking because it has to absorb. So one of the most important things we share in Quench is you need to be able to absorb however much you're drinking. And that is the use of food and fibers in foods and plant materials. So they actually are packaged by Mother Nature to help us absorb all that water and not have a flash flood or a runoff in your system. Hmm. Okay. That's why we like to use wa- uh, water from plants. Right. But how much water do you drink from a glass, Gina? Well, my needs move through my day or my season or mm-hmm. my amount of expenditure. Hmm. And um, I make sure that I'm also getting fibers from plants to absorb the water that I drink. So I'm not just splashing down water. It's a strategy to include the fibers and the nutrients in food. By the way, fresh fruits and vegetables come in at over 90% water. So this is a water bottle packaged by Mother Nature, if I can just put that image in your head. Of course. So it makes me think about the ongoing conversation of fad diets and trends and you know, pure protein and cutting out the sugar in fruit so that we lose weight or have more energy. And it seems um, a conflict to me that there are so many opinions out there. What are the most hydrating foods? And can, can you give us a rundown? Because then we can fit it into our own lifestyle choices. Yes, that's what's so great about hydration, is hydration is um, sort of the the original source of our energy, and then whatever we want to eat around that 
and um, can be according to our individual needs and our current our current situation. So my job is really to help you understand how important hydration is, how much of it we can be culling from fruit, fresh fruits and vegetables, and um, you know that you want to know the top ten. Of course, so is my publisher. They like all these lists of things. <laughs> <Yes>. But <laughs> what I want to share with your listeners is that any fresh fruit or vegetable is going to be above 80 to 90% water. So if you want to have the 94% or the 98%, let me tell you about watermelon or cucumber or surprise, cauliflower. Cauliflower, cruciferous. They're amazing. amazing. It's a big surprise. But if they're fresh and or even cooked, they're still very high in water content. That water content is then perfectly packaged and uh, shaped by nature to get directly into our tissues and our cells. Gina, thank you for sharing your passion for keeping us well um, and continued success to you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jamie. What a great opportunity to share. Oh, thank you. Largely influenced by the new scientific discoveries from the University of Washington's Pollock Water Lab, you have to read it. It's called Quench, and you can heal your body through this new science of optimum hydration. And I am all for being better, being well. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of inspiration and information. And I do hope that I fed your soul. I hope that you'll tune in every weekend for lots more delicious conversation. And I'll leave you with my last bite, my last ounce or tidbit for the weekend. It's a six-ingredient salsa shrimp ceviche because I love ceviche especially during the warmer months when you want something light and fresh it's like a kiss from the sea you want to make sure that you get fresh fish of course and that you're making sure that there's enough acid to cure the seafood that you serve it cold as well and that you have a whole bunch of tortilla chips for crunching with my salsa shrimp ceviche is the juice of a couple of limes, a couple of lemons, and an orange all combined. And I like to use jumbo shrimp that have been peeled and deveined. I cut them bite-sized from raw, and I marinate them for at least 30 minutes in that acid mixture, lemon, lime, and orange, until the shrimp are cooked or opaque and firm throughout. And then I drain the juice and I combine, and here's the secret, a quick go-to shortcut, Uh, Half a cup of your favorite chunky salsa with some cucumber and fresh cilantro, along with those now cooked, quote unquote, shrimp. And I add back a little bit of the juice mixture until it's nice and juicy and delicious. Then I season it with salt and pepper and I serve the salsa shrimp ceviche well chilled, as I said, with lots of tortilla chips for dipping. I will post my quick go-to weekend salsa shrimp ceviche on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. And of course, you'll find a bevy of recipes for more inspiration at chefjamie.com. I will meet you here next weekend when there's lots more fabulous food in your radio. I thank you for listening. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off, and I hope you continue to eat well. Well,